Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And frankly, I think that that should probably be an exercise that every human has to go through. We want to know what you believe in and what you're working towards and how you think it's going to happen. It may not happen that way, but defend it. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast, where every week we talk about things that can bring us a little more love or liberation. And sometimes we address economic freedom. We've done a couple of episodes on managing your money. And this week, I'm going to talk with Amy Millman, who's an exceptional woman who's been really uh, pounding the drum for female access to venture capital for many, many years, which you'll hear about in her story. But in order to set the stage for this episode, I thought it might be helpful to give you some facts. Uh, women receive only a very small percentage of venture capital funding. 2% of all venture money that was allocated in 2016, for example, and it got worse during the pandemic. I don't know how it could possibly get worse than that, but it did. But businesses that are founded by women deliver a much higher return on investment, more than twice as much per dollar, and a stronger cumulative revenue of more than 10% more cumulative revenue, according to BCG Research. But they don't get the money. And the question I had was why? And I found a TED Talk from a researcher named Dana Kanzi, who is a professor of organizational behavior at the London Business School. So she looked at presentations from both female-backed and male-backed founders, and then she looked at the how venture investors dialogued with those founders. And they articulated two things. One is that the founders all spoke equally about promotional, like the visions that they had for the company and how big it could be and how great the opportunity was, and preventional, like the things that could go wrong and their competition and the weak links in their chain. Um, they spoke equally in their own presentations. But investors asked the men two-thirds of the time promotional questions, how big could it be? And they asked the women most of the time preventional questions. And so... It really points out a bias in the way venture investors approach women and that bias and like, oh, it's more likely to go wrong versus the visionary aspect is what seems to translate into less amounts of funding. So there's these psychological hidden biases. There's also one called a similarity bias, which says that they're, people are looking for things that they know worked before. And because there are so few examples, a female-led startups becoming the kind of big wins that VCs want, that they're less likely to see a pattern um, that they want to replicate there yet. So part of the job of being out advocating for women to get more access to capital, you know, we have education, we have the vote, the capital is the next stage in, in terms of creating a more just and equitable world. And also we have fucking great ideas and we want them to go. You know, we want our dharma to be fulfilled. And I'm sure many of you do also. You have businesses that you want to grow. 
ideas that you want to see successful. And so people like Amy, who was running Springboard, this venture accelerator for many years and now has a fund of her own, are critical in that mix. So without further ado, Amy Millman. Basically, for anyone who's listening, this amazing woman it has for over 20 years been supporting women entrepreneurs and not like, you know, your backyard home office entrepreneurs, but like women who are building serious venture funded organizations. She has been out in the forefront um, supporting all of those efforts and really making a noise so that there's access to capital and resources to grow businesses. And so I met Amy when she was doing Springboard, I want to say in 2002, no, maybe 1999. No, no 2002. 2002. I wasn't educated in 1999 yet. <laughs> Enough to actually talk to people like you. But yeah, 2002. Why don't you tell them a little bit about the story for, about Springboard and sort of what was like what it was like then and what's changed in the in the 20 years that you ran that organization, the 21 years you ran it. You know, the whole story started with a program that I, I was running with the Federal Reserve Board out in California. Um, at the time, I was running a federal commission on women's business ownership. It's called the National Women's Business Council. It was established by Congress in 1988, and it continues to this day. And it the representation on it are women business owners and heads of organizations that represent women business owners. And I was asked to be the executive director of that organization, which I ran for eight years during the Clinton administration. And so that was some time ago. And we were doing access to capital workshops around the country. And we ended up, the last one was in California. And this is in the late 90s. The purpose was to put bankers together on one side of the table with entrepreneurs on the other and talk about building a relationship and understanding you know, the needs of each other. And it was a disaster. And the reason why is because bankers don't, invest, don't put their money into tech companies, or at least back in those days, they had no idea. And you know, if you didn't have three years of revenues you know, and clear collateral, you couldn't, and tech companies, in those early days, I mean, even today, have nothing like that. And so I was sitting there, and I, at the end of it, one of the entrepreneurs came up to me and said, this was a total waste of time. And I said, well, where do you get your capital from? And they said, the equity markets. And I thought they meant the, I thought they meant the stock market. <laughs> and it, they said, go back and get yourself educated which is what I did. I came back to Washington, D.C., where I was located, and I knocked on a bunch of doors and said, what is that? And they said, oh, it's a really big thing now that sort of, this is where companies that are not, that don't have revenues in the beginning and can't prove that, don't have collateral, go. And mostly these are intangible businesses. And I said, well, okay, how do they meet these investors? And they said, well, there are these forums where they come, you know, the companies come and pitch and people sit in the audience and, and listen, and then they meet. And I said, oh, well, we could do that. 
And so we went back to California and Oracle gave us the a room, a big conference area. And uh, Larry Ellison, who was the CEO at the time, said, you know, I'll invite all my friends. And so, yes, the room was packed. And we had 26 companies out of 350 women-led businesses that we recruited, frankly, didn't expect more than 50. And they all got funded. And then the market crashed. But by that time, we were going to Boston, where we met you, Christine, and and then back to California, Chicago, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, meeting in Texas and everywhere to see if we could find more women who were running these crazy tech-enabled businesses. And the more we started meeting these women, the more excited we got about you know, these are people who could build successful, scalable, sustainable businesses that are going to change people's lives, you know, really impact the economies. And so then we went global and started looking. And so over the years, you know, it went by so quickly because you were meeting unbelievably spectacularly talented women who just needed you know, people to watch their back. Yeah, I read that you had funded over 800 companies and returned a ridiculous amount of profit and and, and capital returns to the investors. And I, I wonder, after seeing this cycle through so many times, what was it like when you left Springboard and started Stage Next? What was the same and what was different about the reception that your female entrepreneurs were getting? Well, you know, back in 2000, there were, we were it. You were it. There you know, there were some membership groups that were doing conferences and things, the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs out in California. There was a group up in Boston through the Center for Women and Enterprise. There was a couple of other small little groups, mostly for women business owners, but nothing really supporting entrepreneurs after that. And we partnered with all of them. And then, you know, 20 years later, there's you know, this amazing groundswell of organizations and understanding. And even now, you know, for specific women of color or, or women who are in life science, um, uh, I just joined the board of women in bio with an idea of how to really get excited about women entrepreneurs and connecting them to women uh, who've built professional careers in pharma and medical device companies. I mean, the, it, it, this was just not there then. There was no place for women, you know, you, you had to sort of go in the generic areas where, you know, incubators and the early accelerators and the associations, but it wasn't really welcoming for women. And, um, and so, but now, you know, there are women-led funds, there are real focus on areas that understand the kind of, of, of priorities that women have or their perspective in running businesses. Now, will I say that we're not 100% you know, at parity or however we gauge the numbers of women running substantial businesses, but we have made huge progress. And I would say that Springboard you know, had some role to play in some of that. 
I'm mindful of the fact that it it's it's an idea that time has come, but you know we were trying different things to support the women and to create a network of you know I would say women who've been there run that. Yeah, I'm in the middle of doing another one. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Four years in, a little bit you know different than the tech stuff, and a lot has changed. I didn't raise venture money on this one, but I did use these um, hybrid models of, of uh, debt capital from Shopify and ClearBank. And those were really wonderful. It's like they just introspect your data on your daily sales, and then they mitigate their risk by taking back a small percentage of sales every day until it's paid off. It's flat fee. And um, there was no application process because what you said about the banks in the beginning, the three years of revenue and clear collateral, that is still the case with the banks. And I, w- I will say because I'm doing intimate health, and particularly perimenopause, menopause is where we started, that that was also not something that at the time there was seemed to be a lot of receptivity for in the startup markets, you know, with, I've said this before, but it's hard to walk into a room full of guys and explain to them the deep need that the data was pointing to. But so we're lucky in that way. There's no data on it. There wasn't data because nobody ever invested or gave money to find the data. And now that women have reached a point where, you know, they can make the case either in academia or whatever. Actually, Christine, you know, you you say what has changed really? Well, what has changed is mindsets, but, you know, it took 20 years. And not only that, but there is, you know, why did it, you know, during springboard time, we didn't invest money. We said we invested human capital because, again, we were pushing rocks uphill to get people, even the women themselves, to have confidence in their abilities and and to open doors for them to people who were a little, you know, thought it was risky or didn't want to do it at all. And so, you know, so we get to a certain point 20 years in, I feel there is a critical mass and a greater understanding that talent exists in all kinds of shapes and forms. And so it made just so much sense to say, all right, now we have this network of experts in building companies. Let's see if we could pool our resources and our expertise and invest in companies like yours, Christine, that are pushing the rock up the hill again. What is it like for you to switch sides, like to be go from advisor to putting your own money or your investees money on the line? What's that been like for you? Yeah, um, well, it's a definite huge change in perspective. You know, I'm, I heard someone say the other day, um, it, some TV guy saying the reason why he left a CBS, I guess it was, was because they were more interested in in uh, ratings and revenues, while he was interested in impact and results through the news. And I thought, oh my God, that's so perfect for me. Is you know, my whole thesis for Springboard was women need a posse; they need a group around them. Actually, most businesses business owners need that. And there were very few that would have women as members in those days. And so let's build that. And then we'll learn from that experience together. And so it was all about relational, since the rest of your world was about transactions. 
So we weren't going to be the transactional ones. We were going to be the relational ones. But we've arrived at this. There are like so many women out there that are embracing entrepreneurship and investment, at least compared to what it used to be. And so it's all right, let's all invest. Let's all be all in. I'm so glad that you're connecting that because I do feel like when you have a stake in it, you have a different eye to what you say yes to. What do you think is the mindset? uh, uh, After all these years working with women, what is the mindset of a successful founder? So I'll repeat one of these aha moments I just had. Um, I'm also writing a book with Denise Brousseau, um, who was the founder with me of, of Springboard. And and it's about the next stage after you exit, either positively or negatively from your from a business, what have you learned and what do you apply to your next venture? I mean, you could probably, we could probably write the book just about you, Christine. And what we learned about it was it's an iterative process. This is all a journey. What you learn in the first one informs how you take the next step and what do you do? And it may not be have like with you may not be anything like you did previously. You know, one of the companies in Australia that I work with was a biotech company, but she moved to a cell therapy company running a cell therapy company. And I said, Sam, how is that even possible? There are two completely different areas. And she said, I know how to run a business. And that was the difference. And then you take that deeper, Christine, to a really, really interesting aha moment that one of our other Springboard alumna called me up to talk about. And she said, we have been talking to entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, about how to speak investor or how to present your your opportunity in a way that somebody else will find it interesting. And she said, here's what I did when investors said to me, what's your, what's the exit strategy? I would say to them, the exit strategy will, the market will take care of the exit strategy. That's, you know, it's an intangible, but what I can control and what I can do is the value that I bring and the and how I execute on this plan. Here's my plan. Are you aligned? I love that. I know. I mean, it was just I I had chills listening to that, and I thought, why didn't you tell me, Holly, ten years ago that that was how we should be working with entrepreneurs? I was aiming towards it, but I didn't get it completely. I think that's changed also because because you were coached and often by the investors themselves to speak to the exit strategy, what you could hit in sales to get a good enough multiple and all of that stuff. And as a mission-driven founder, that's very hard to wrap your head around because then you're going for growth over sort of, and pacing of growth over like long-term base building and solidifying and getting the integrity of the whole operation to like fit together. Um, but I do love this idea of the iterative process. I mean, y- you learn things that you build on to run a business, but you also learn things like, I don't want to work with this kind of people. You know, I want to I want to do something that when I leave this planet, I can point to what I worked on and be like, hey, I made a dent in something that matters. That was, that was for me, 
one of the big movements is, you know, not doing cappuccino, uh, froth on the cappuccino kind of ventures that made enterprises minorly more economically viable or productive that I wanted to do something that impacted people's actual experience of being in their body. And so that goes back to this whole entire importance of what's your core? What drives you? Who are you? Not who does somebody want you to be? Or what, what is it they think you ought to be doing? God knows we try to build businesses, you know, that weren't the, the, the idea of the entrepreneur. You know, you get excited about, oh, we could go this way and you could do this with it. No, understanding and being aligned with what that entrepreneur sees as the pathway, you know, that next phase of growth, what, is, what they are going to do to get it to there. And I think that applies to just about everything in life. You know, if you're starting college, what are you going to put into it to get to that next phase and then reevaluate and evaluate on that thing? It's same thing with a job. What are you going to produce for that company that's providing you with money? Well, I love that you're speaking on this mindset piece to true agency, like the locus of control as a founder is in you. What are you going to do piece? And then this iterative process of ongoing learning and consistently putting more inputs into your own, not your artificial intelligence, but your organic intelligence, your OI, and then really being clear on the plan, you know, what you're doing and, and, and how you're doing it. And that those three things have very little to do with gender, but there's a, there seems to be a gender block that, that kind of has gotten in the way for a lot of women. Self-doubt, you mentioned. So how do, you, how do you get around the doubt question, the self-doubt question? So in the last few years, you know, I've had a lot of aha moments working with all of you. The last one was probably about six years ago in Australia. You know, there are amazing, talented entrepreneurs in Australia, but they're like 10 years behind the U.S. or were 10 years behind the U.S. in the development of the entrepreneurial economy and and spirit there and we were sitting there and the the cohort couldn't explain in easy terms what they were trying to accomplish and i said all right you know this part and you know this part and you have a feeling for that or you're afraid to say what's going to happen after next year let's do a slide that basically has your business plan on one slide. We called it a milestone slide. And we said, you know, you're going to talk about product market. You're going to talk about funding needs, revenues. You're going to talk about when the value of your company goes up and you're going to explain it in a five-year period. And you're going to describe it, defend it for us. Changed everything because it wasn't just pieces, it was the picture, like what the financial projections show in numbers. This was in prose. And so matched with those financial projections are an explanation of what it really means. And you could buy in or challenge the entrepreneur and they had to defend it. And it was powerful. And frankly, I think that that should probably be an exercise that every human has to go through. We want to know what you believe in and what you're working towards and, and how you think it's going to happen. It may not happen that way, but defend it. You know, intuition operates in images. 
And vision is truly a vision of a picture. So the idea of how do I paint a picture, tell a story for others is not just for others. Until you have that in your mind, you can't actually manifest it. I mean, I think, you know, people talk about manifestation in sort of this woo-woo way, but it actually, the root word is like manicure, it's hands, to put your hands to something, to make it happen. And um, I can't do that unless I can see the picture in my own head. So in making people go through that exercise is a necessary clarification for everyone. Yeah, if you're going to enter the Mexican market, what does that mean? You know, all right, you're going to do that. How many people with what type of product and in what time frame and what is success for you entering that particular market and not just I'm entering, you know, in two years, I'll enter the Mexican market. I don't know what that means. Tell me. Yeah, I, I don't know what that means. I'm supposed to be entering the EU market. And I have no idea what that means. I don't have any I don't have a feeling for it. So we've got know yourself, know your core, who are you? And then putting color and specifics and out picturing the things that are in your business plan in a way that you really feel them and are asking the right questions and understanding the economics around it. So those are all good mindset things. So you went off and you um, took all this knowledge and now you're sitting on the other side. I want to talk about what are you seeing? What's exciting you? I saw that you invested, by the way, or you, or you supported the woman who did Canva. Oh, yeah, that was 10 years ago when Melanie Perkins was in our first cohort in Australia. I think she was living at Perth at the time and was a graphic designer for yearbooks. And she came in with this really lovely presentation with the, but a very simple idea. She said it was, you know, they've been doing these yearbooks forever, but most of the stuff that the schools wanted was just like a template, you know? So they could put a template together so she could spend her time doing the more interesting creative work, right? So they set this thing together and it took about three years for, she got some money from Commercialization Australia and there were a couple of in, small investor groups, um, Blackbird and a few others down there that gave her a little bit of money. They struggled for a while until actually, I mean, this is sort of serendipity that happens. She was, I, I don't know if it was in Hawaii or Fiji or somewhere, they were um, uh, surfing or windsurfing or something like that and happened to be one of the big investors in Silicon Valley happened to be there and they got to talking and he said, wow, this is sound, sounds like Constant Contact, which is again, another springboard company that went, you know, unicorn. And so he said, I think, I think we might want to invest in this. And then she met Guy Kawasaki through them and he became their evangelist. We actually introduced her to Gail Goodman from Constant Contact because it's the same model. Now she's taken it way, way, way beyond, you know, that original idea and did it building individual by individual, getting the input from people. I mean, it's a great story. It is a great story that she was a graphic designer that's now worth you know, $7 billion or whatever. 40. And that she built this company, 40, the company is, but I think like her remaining share. But that, but that idea that 
we were talking that the best businesses are things that make other people money, save other people time, give other, give people a chance to do self-expression. You know, that there, you really have to have this giant proposition. And that was such a pain point. I bet she didn't even know the extent to which her idea was a pain point for the rest of us. You know, it's, it's saved, it saved our organization so much money. It's the equivalent of the clear bank idea over on the financing side. That's right. It's exactly the same thing with us. When I look back at how much money we spent on, on graphic designers and the whole process of, of doing annual reports, which I had a student doing our annual reports and they looked as good as, you know, the $50,000 we'd spent on everything prior to that. So that's one definitely to be proud of. Do you have others that are sort of things that you feel particularly good about that you were involved with? Oh, you know, I'm in love with all of you. So uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's very, very hard. Yes, I do have favorites. Actually, one of the more recent unicorn ones, and, and it's not just the unicorns I love. I love the talent. You know, I can remember meeting you and what a standout you were in that class. There was this aura around you that I just, it just gravitated towards, um, that I wanted to follow you. Whatever you did, I figured you were going to make a stamp on everything you did. And I felt that same way about all 800 of you. But, but in particular, um, Julia Cheek, who started with this idea based on her own personal health issue with needing a home test because she couldn't, she was traveling and she couldn't get a doctor's appointment and she had what she thought was an infection and she knew there would be home tests for these things so she could do it herself. So she started one that was just for STDs. It was all of a sudden, everybody was asking for an STD home test. She wasn't sure whether she wanted to do you know, just limited numbers of tests, just, just, you know, in that area, or what would she do? And then the pandemic happened. And she had raised some money before. And so she got to figure, well, what can we do that can add value? We can use the facilities that are our te testing facilities in the universities in Texas that she had contracted with, and she could pay them because she had money now, they could do COVID testing, first home COVID test. And she immediately, like on like March 11th, went to the FDA and said, we could do this. Would you give us expedited approval for it? Well, it took a while to do that. But meanwhile, she was setting up everything that needed to happen for that. Yeah, Everlywell, right? That's her? That's right. That hits a whole nother set of needs that she probably wasn't anticipating either, but that everybody wants to take back control of their health and look at their own data. And it's ridiculously expensive to go and get these tests and have to be dependent on someone else. Like, what if I could show up at the doctor's office with all of my data in hand? That would be a much better solution for all of them. So, I mean, she just hit it on every level. By the way, that company that we did with you sold to DocuSign for $100 million. Did you know that? I, I don't think you ever told me that. There you go. <laughs> but I'm but I'm not I'm not surprised at all. I thought it was a winner. And you know, it may have been timing or whatever, or you know, not enough funding to to actually take it all the way, but the exit. It did. It just it it slowed down and it kind of like went into its groovy bare minimum for a while and then, you know, the timing was right. I mean we we're early for enterprise software as a service. 
but it worked out. And so you have a good nose. That's what I wanted to tell you. All right. So what are you excited about now? What are the, what are, what are the sectors you're looking at and uh, what's, what's exciting you? You know, I got into, as you mentioned before, the whole idea of impact. What was really going to change our lives or just change the way we thought? You know, so many people had difficult times with really, really important products and services that just the market wasn't ready for it. And it required an amazing amount of re-education. I look at, all right, you know, in five years, what could be the case? What could happen? You know, and being there now and looking towards, you know, where's my crystal ball? You know, what what could be the future? And and this whole thing sort of started with, you know, another Springboard alumna is a woman named Mae Jemison. Mae was the first African-American woman in space. And um, she had a autonomic nervous system device that she tested on a shuttle mission, a sleep disorder research. And she came to Springboard to commercialize it. And it was, this was before wearables were, you know, even considered. And so way, way, this was 2003, two, way before time, her time. You know, fast forward another 10 years, she called me and she said, I'm doing this big project with DARPA, you know, the defense, Department of Defense's research group. And it's called 100 Year Starship. We are thinking about what would we need to produce, innovate, develop in order to get to another solar system in 100 years. And so that whole discussion was about what do we know now and what do we need to know to develop the next platform that we then will figure out what the next platform after that is so that in 100 years, we know how to get to another solar system. It was fascinating. She brought all these people together, you know, everybody with an idea of here's where we are now. And this would be the next step. This is what we'd have to develop in order to get to the next plateau. And she let me participate and moderate and, and engage. And I just thought, that's what I want to do. And that's what I've been doing at Springboard all these years. People come in with an idea of how to solve a problem or an anticipated problem and then do whatever it takes to try to get it to work and to be embraced. And my feeling is that's what we're going to be investing in is people who are not just solving yesterday's problem, but solving tomorrow's problem and, 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 following them through that process, just like you did. I like that idea as sort of just trying to imagine the enabling technologies for everything, the 100-year uh, Planet Earth project, the 100-year uh, gender equity project, the 100-year alternative to, you know, living in a just world project. You could do it in every in every way. Um, I don't know. I, I, had a, I just had a brain freeze after the Mae Jameson story because my mind went in a thousand directions on how your thinking would change if you really began to look at those kind of timelines. I'm reminded of Stuart Brand and the Long Now Foundation, which tries to think in 10,000 year cycles. You know, what would you have to do to build a clock that would last 10,000 years? And just uh, 
putting that question out makes you think of all of the risk factors, the material science, the stabilizing placement, all that stuff, and and ended up uh, kicking off a whole bunch of new technologies. Exactly. I mean, governance, even what people would wear, or or would you actually even send people there? Maybe it's the AI information. Maybe it's, you know, if you did send people, you know, we were talking about decades of travel, potentially, but what would you travel in? You know, what about health involved? I mean, it was, it was the whole universe of issues that would come up in that process just to get there. Mm. You know, the things that people are thinking about are world-changing ideas that, you know, are just ideas. How do you make them into reality? Yeah. One of the things that I feel that you've been remarkable at throughout your career is is this relational component that you talked about, maintaining relationships, staying in connection with people, keeping your database current, all of those kinds of things. And I wonder if you'd give some advice on how to be a good relational being in and keep those connections alive. So I learned this when I was a tobacco lobbyist. Nobody was interested in me walking into their offices when I was a tobacco lobbyist, unless I made it personal. Mm. And I think that's the most part about it. First of all, you get the most out of it when you spend the time to listen and learn about what the other person needs or what they care about. As a tobacco lobbyist, you'd walk in and the first thing I would try to find out and would know before I went in most of the time, what mattered to that member of Congress. And that's what I would talk to them about because everything was about seeing we could come to the meeting of the minds on any aspect of issues or topics that we cared about. And so it wasn't about selling them on my position because I was never going to get support from probably 80% of them. But I would say, what do you, you know, talk to me about what's important in your district. What are the things that, you know, here are some bills I see that you've co-authored. What, talk to me about that. How can I help you with that? Nine times out of 10, it didn't accrue to my benefit as, you know, for my company, but the relationships lasted for a long time and I would get an audience. I would be able to walk in and talk with people because I did what I could to support what they needed. And that's how I, and if they needed to find out who was on the other side of my issue, I would bring that person in educate them, inform them. You know, I think that that's something that good salespeople learn. Yeah, it's about, it seems like it's also for you, like a a deep empathy and like really being interested in what other people are about. And then you keep them in your uh, field of awareness. And when that thing comes up later, you almost have an internal database that says, oh, I remember somebody who needs that. And then you take, and, and I think there are a lot of people who remember that, but then they don't pick up the phone. Yeah, well, I'm fascinated by all of your experiences. And, you know, I remember a time where you and I 
I had invited a group of, we were out in Silicon Valley or San Francisco and we invited a group of people in and we were talking about, you know, monetizing your expertise for you, you know, with a, with an idea of putting together a, I don't know, it was a, some kind of consulting group or whatever of springboard alumna and you challenged it. And everybody else was like, oh, great idea, you know, whatever, you know, with no intention of following up. But you basically said, I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know why that's important. And it it was a challenge. And I had to think about that, you know, and I remember that about you, one of maybe five or six different instances, you know, and and so it was an education for me. Hey, I would like to ask you about the book, though, before we, as we're sort of winding down, tell me about this book you're working on. Yeah, well, actually, whereas the fund is stage next, this is exit stage next, or at least that's the working title. And this all came out of so many conversations I've had with so many entrepreneurs, and basically what informed how I left Springboard, you know, 20 years most people would say, like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Well, I had been observing, you know, the exits of so many people and learning a lot on what that really means. And as one of our entrepreneurs, Catherine Marie Pace said, Amy, it's the long game. They're all chapters. Your next step builds on what you did before. And so I started having conversations with hundreds of springboard alumna who contacted me and I'd say, what did you learn about yourself? What did you take from that exit, whether it was the last one you just did or the previous one or the springboard one way back? What did you learn and what did you apply to your next endeavor? And how did that come about? Some of it was, you know, I only want to work with the team that I'm trust that we have a trust and we're working together. Some of it was, I want to do something completely different, but I know how to get stuff done. I want to have an impact. Like you've said, others were, I got called from people that had invested me before to get me to do this next gig. Um, but I said, give me some insights one of them was really impactful for me in this and probably will be featured in this book. It was, you know, you said you talk about agency. Katrina Wallace said to me, I spent 25 years trying to figure out how to do stuff and doing it. Now I'm spending my time being, I'm a builder and a fixer. I know how to do this stuff and I know how to help others do this stuff. And that being, that essence of being is so unbelievably important. And to under, and see if we can figure out how to get people to think about that in the earliest stages. You know, what's your core? You know, what drives you? What motivates you? Well, I'm sure it's going to be very useful to a lot of people. But we'll see. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's edition of the Rose Woman Podcast. The podcast is sponsored by my own entrepreneurial company, Rosebud Woman. Rosebud Woman makes beautiful vulva, vaginal, and intimate skincare products, as well as body products, lifestyle products. We write books to invite more reverence and ritual into daily life. 
books on educating on the body and the female experience. We do events. We have an immense and beautiful event coming up in New York City, a week-long celebration of art, music, female connection. At the end of September, uh, which you can learn more about at rosewoman.com as a benefit for the Center for Reproductive Rights, and so much more. So please check us out at rosewoman.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends by texting the link to them today. I always appreciate your reviews and feedback. It really helps me uh, keep the podcast going. Have a wonderful day living into your dreams and your dharma and making your wishes into material reality. Mm